Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Dr. Roger Welton, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Dr. Welton and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong marriages, wrong careers, or wrong homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best or what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show and after the show, Visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book, as well as my new win note letter. Note, note letter, not newsletter. On to my guest today, Dr. Roger Welton, creator and webmaster of WebDVM veterinarian and president of Maybeck Animal Hospital in Melbourne, Florida. Welton is the author of Canine and Feline 101, a complete guide for selecting, training, and caring for dogs and cats. WebDVM provides disease management articles, a virtual symptom checker, and veterinary advice. Welton hosts the WebDVM post blog and talk show, Pet Chat Radio, in which he provides the latest information in pet health care and farm management. I will uncover today why Dr. Welton chose to become an entrepreneur to practice medicine his way. Welcome to win without competing, Dr. Welton. Well, I appreciate that very much, Dr. Barrow. Thank you very much for having me. 
you grew up in New Jersey. What did your parents do? How many siblings do you have? And what was your family life all about? I grew up in a, a middle-class town. Um, my father was a uh, pharmaceutical executive for a nearby firm called Merck Pharmaceuticals. Most people would have heard of that. Uh, my mother was a real estate agent, and uh, I grew up with a younger sister and older brother. So I was the middle child. Um, the family atmosphere was, was very tight-knit. We were all very close. Uh, parents were very supportive. It was a very positive atmosphere to grow up in. Um, always, always given the uh, impression from our parents that there's nothing that we can't do if we set our minds to it because of the individual abilities we all possess. So, we all, all three of us always felt like there's nothing stopping us, and it was really um, a nice uh, thing to get from my parents all the time. And one of the things that always drove me, uh, especially during times when people told me that. Um, I couldn't do something. It made me more motivated because mom and dad always told me, no, that's not true. You most certainly can. Well, you were very fortunate because they really boosted your self-confidence at a young age. Absolutely. What did you like to do as a child, and when did you know that you wanted to become a veterinarian? Be sure to tell us about Waldo. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I was just like any other um, boy in many regards. Uh, one of your recent guests, Steve Jordan, um, uh, one of the, your, your recent shows, was actually a very close friend of mine, lived right down the road, and he and I, you know, engaged in playing sports together, along with the neighborhood kids, rode bikes, and, and all the things that boys do. Um, it, was, it was great fun, of course, uh, but uh, I was a little bit different from the other boys because I... I loved all the little creatures around me. Um, I always paid such close attention to, to the little rabbits or the, the squirrels running around, the birds. Uh, if we saw a deer, to me it was fascinating. Everybody just kind of blew it off as if, you know, it's just our surroundings, that's, that's the wildlife around us, no big deal. I was fascinated by it and, and just I loved every, every aspect of, of seeing all these little furry creatures around me and I just saw an, is, an innocence and a beauty um, uh, about them that was that was very endearing to me um, at that age. Now, you brought up Waldo. Um, yes, I can't wait for you to share the story about Waldo. Yes, well, Waldo um, came into my life when I was, uh, I believe, four years old. Uh, he was originally intended for my brother. Um, we were raised Catholic, and my brother was making his first Holy Communion. I, I believe that was the, um, that was the, the, the uh, I guess, the, the occasion that he was receiving this dog is a reward for. Um, so Waldo came, and my brother, you know, he's he's uh, doesn't dislike animals, but but didn't quite have the same passion for them that I do. And uh, you know, in a pretty short time there, Waldo, little 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 by little, became pretty much my dog. Um, where I was the one spending pretty much most of the time with Waldo. Um, he was a, a little cocker spaniel, um, cutest little thing, probably about. A little over 20 pounds, uh, had a little stubby black tail and big, big floppy ears and, and big expressive eyes as Cocker Spaniels do. And I just absolutely was enamored with this dog. And uh, along with Steve Jordan, I considered, you know, equally as much as my best friend. <laughs> and, oh, so on uh, one hand, you had Waldo as your best friend. On yes. the other hand, you had Steve Jordan as your best friend. Absolutely, and I, I didn't, I didn't separate the two. <laughs> in terms well, of, how of course, I felt. you were you were four years old, so that's understandable. So yes, tell absolutely. us more what happened to your Waldo, because I know he had to be rushed to a vet. Yes, of course. Well, at, at, at four years old, and I, I, I might have been five by this point, you're, you're not thinking of career. You're not thinking of you know where is where is my life path going to take me down. But the first time I had the uh, inclination that veterinary medicine was for me was a, a, at that early age. Waldo had gotten into the garbage and had eaten several chicken bones, and he had, you know, crunched them up, and chicken bones can be very, very sharp, and they ended up getting jammed up in his gut, and he became very sick and in a great deal of pain. So my father, you know, decided to take the dog to, down to the local vet, and he, he I, I don't believe he wanted me to go. Uh, my recollection was that he, he, he didn't want me to go, but I absolutely insisted that I go because what happened to this dog was, was, was pretty much my life as well. So he acquiesced, 
went uh, with my, my, my father and my brother down to the local vet, and what had happened was that those uh, bone shards had ended up getting jammed up into you know, Waldo's rectum, and he was uh, in a great deal of pain because of it and, and was bleeding from there and uh, unable to defecate, of course. Um, so thankfully, uh, surgery wasn't required. I watched as the vet, little by little, just pulled all those shards out, was able to do it manually, and I saw my dog better and back to normal within just a couple of days. And I thought that was just the greatest thing I'd ever seen, that my beloved dog was rescued by this man. And I wanted to be that man. In fact, my mother quotes me uh, frequently that I turned to her at some point through the whole process and said to her, uh, Mom, I want to be a doggy doctor just like that man who helped Waldo. And from then on, it's pretty much all I wanted to do. Did they put Waldo under anesthesia, Dr. Welton, or, or um, not? They didn't need to. I guess it was, um, you know, and, and of course this is hindsight and many years ago, um, but it, it seems to me that it was it was superficial enough and non, non-painful enough that he, could, he was able to do it manually without, without sedating him. So, no, I don't recall there was anesthesia involved. But I don't recall the dog suffering too much. I would have been devastated by that. And I do recall a, a, a very quick recovery. Within you know a day or two, my dog was pretty much back to normal. Did the vet talk to you at all? Because he knew that Waldo was your dog. I, I'm trying to get at whether he was kind to you in the same way as he was to the dog. He was kind to all of us. Um, he didn't talk to me specifically. He talked to the family, which you know, my mother didn't come along for whatever reason. I believe she was home with my my little sister, who was an infant at the time. So it was my father, um, my brother, and myself, and we were all very sad. Of course, even although the dog was pretty much my dog, everybody loved Waldo. He was just a lovely little animal, and we were very concerned. And the, the vet talked to the three of us together. I I remember him very clearly. He was an Indian gentleman. Um, he had a just a, a a kindness about him that was that just rang through, and, and, and it was comforting uh, to, to know that not only he had the confidence but also the kindness and the compassion towards my dog. Well, I think it's wonderful that he became your role model uh, when you were five years old. So you never forgot this doctor. No, I never did. And, and in fact, every time we went to the family vet thereafter, um, I always paid attention. I always just watched you know exactly what they did and how they did it and why they did it and watched how my dog reacted to it. So did you continue going then to this vet as you grew up? We actually ended up switching, um, I, not because of any poor care. I believe, I, I believe he sold the practice, and you know it, I, we had gone there out of a recommendation, and it was I guess one or two towns over. So we decided to go someplace closer someplace that was recommended, and it was called uh, Boulevard Veterinary Clinic in Kenilworth, New Jersey. And we ended up going there um, pretty much, you know, for most of my life and, and with most of my dogs. And again, over and over, you had good successes, apparently, because you kept seeing yourself as wanting to be the doggy doctor. Absolutely. I don't think I ever came across one that I didn't have great admiration and respect for. You have high standards for animal care. What did you learn in your childhood which set the stage for your passionate pursuit of high-quality care? Was it watching the veterinarians? What was it? Um, Well, it it was a combination of things. I think um, personally I always set my standards very high for whatever I did. Um, My my wife uh, frequently um, always talks about the fact that I must always be the best at what I do, no matter what it is, if, if I get into something, I have to be the best at it and, and not become obsessed with it, but I, I just, uh, you know, practice it and perfect it and, and ponder it no matter what it is. Um, so I think that's part of my psyche just, just to begin with right there. But, you know, having seen all these great veterinarians and, again, the Boulevard Veterinary Hospital, and, and I certainly hope they're still there, um, they they were just phenomenal. Uh, they were able to care for my animals always in, in such a kind, compassionate way, but such a competent way as well. 
And what I really liked about that particular clinic was they always had the two, uh, you know, matriarchal, patriarchal kind of figures that were the older, experienced, uh, I, I guess, old guard, so to speak. And then they always had a couple of young associates that would come up through, be mentored by them, but at the same time bring in, um, you know, some of the newer techniques and newer thought, which it just made a perfect atmosphere, I thought. It's interesting how observant you were as a child. Well, yeah, um, that that's that's you know very much been my mo and and, and very very in tune with my surroundings and sometimes to the point that uh, you know some some would have considered me a bit of a daydreamer because I would just you know always very much um, take in certain aspects of of my surroundings and really just think about them a great deal. <laughs> Well, I think, Steve Jordan, your childhood friend, yeah. is very similar to you in that respect. Absolutely. We we are very similar. We're both very driven, uh, ambitious, um, uh, also very, very pondering as well. What college did you attend, and why did you select that college, and what did you major in? Um, I went to Montclair State University in northeast New Jersey. I selected Montclair State University because I, uh, I, I really like the school. Uh, you know, of course, you go to visit the various campuses as you're making your selections. But most importantly, um, they offered which uh, a major uh, program of study, which at the time was a fledgling uh, course of study known as biochemistry. Uh, most most curriculums are going to offer biochemistry now, but back then, not every school did, and they were one of the few of my schools of interest. Um, Secondly, it was close enough to home where, you know, I, I was I was far enough from home where I I could be my own person, uh, be on my own, grow as a person away from my parents. At the same time, if I got homesick, they were only a you know 30 40 minute drive away, and I could come and have a home cooked meal with mom and 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 catch up because you know there was always that closeness with my with my family. Uh, lastly, they recruited me to play lacrosse. I was a varsity lacrosse player in high school and. I was very much interested in playing college lacrosse, and they had a good team, and I was I was interested in playing. They were interested in me playing for them, and that all worked out really well. I think it's very interesting that at an early age, you developed a blueprint of the right fit veterinarian. Then subsequently, you developed a blueprint of the right fit college, and next you also developed a blueprint for the Right Fit Veterinarian School. You're a graduate of Ross University School of Veterinary Medicine. Why, why was this school the right fit for you? Ross University, um, its main offices are in, uh, well, at the time we're in New York City and Manhattan, the uh, Office of Admissions in Manhattan, the um, uh, pretty much the, the 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 entire administrative offices were 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 there. The school, they actually have two schools: a medical school and a, a veterinary school. Medical school is in Dominica, on the island of Dominica, and the veterinary school is on the island of St. Kitts. And of course, that's where I was aiming to go. Uh, the school was very unique in that you spent your time on the island, living among the uh, native population there, um, which made for an incredible experience. The um, the school was situated on the side of a side of a mountain overlooking the Caribbean, so it was absolutely stunning and breathtaking to go to class there every day. The school had its own dairy, and because um, because the uh, the restrictions were not um, so um, I guess I want to say stringent in terms of what students can and can't do, we got a lot of hands-on preclinical training that a lot of the stateside students don't get. So I, I, it was a wonderful place to go. It turned out to be not just a wonderful education, but also just an incredible life experience. Tell us more about the environment. I know that when we talked prior to the show, you mentioned the poverty. Tell us more about the impact of the environment in terms of the people and how it affected you. Well, that's um, that's a very good question uh, because that 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 to me I think was part of one of the most uh, significant sort of life changing moments was seeing that this local population was little little more than a, pretty much a third world population uh, had very little uh, it, it's 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 an island of 
a country, really, of a very tiny, tiny percentage of haves and 99% of have-nots that, that live in, in very, very poor conditions. Nonetheless, you have these people that are just happy, content. They do not complain. They're dressed in you know, two, three-generation uh, down hand-me-down clothing, uh, barefoot half the time, and they're just happy people. And it gives you really a perspective. It makes you kind of sit back and, and reevaluate yourself a little bit and think, you know, why was I complaining all, all the, all, about this, that, and the other? Why, why, was, why, was, um, why were certain things that seemed so trivial and would seem so trivial to these people uh, such an issue for me? Uh, you know, having grown up in, in northeast New Jersey, it, it really was a, a big lesson to take away, and, and, and I'm very glad uh, for it. You completed a year of clinical training in the States, actually, even though you were away for your training. And you went to the University of Illinois and did preceptorships in medical oncology and orthopedic surgery at the prestigious Animal Medical Center in New York City. To practice general veterinary medicine, you did not need to go beyond one year of clinical training. What is a preceptorship, and why did you have passion for orthopedic surgery? Um, yeah, what, what you're describing—that's exactly correct. Um, you have your preclinical training, which is anywhere from two and a half to three years, and then you complete your uh, clinical year, where you're rotating through all the various disciplines of veterinary medicine, and of course all the different species. And I did do, do that at University of Illinois. As mandated by Ross University, you actually cannot graduate without doing a year of clinical training at one of the stateside schools. That was the one that I was accepted to. Uh, beyond that, you asked about the preceptorship. A preceptorship is pretty much an extension of your clinical training. You don't have to do it, um, but pretty much it's clinical training that is off-site. It's off-university. And, of course, I selected the Animal Medical Center in Manhattan because it really is uh, the mecca of veterinary medicine. It's an eight-story building on the Upper East Side that each floor has its own specialty, whether it's surgery, ophthalmology, dermatology, oncology. Every floor has its own uh, re referral center, basically, uh, depending on what the patient's being referred for, and it's all specialists. Um, so uh, pr pretty much I, I had selected medical oncology uh, because I thought it would be certainly more – I thought it would be more interesting to complete that rotation um, at uh, the Animal Medical Center as opposed to the University of Illinois. I found there would be a, probably a higher um, number of cases and a, and a greater degree of complexity to the cases um, as opposed to the setting uh, that I was in at, at University of Illinois. Orthopedic surgery, I had already done an orthopedic surgery rotation at University of Illinois and was just completely fascinated and taken with it. Um, and actually, I, I was of the mind that I wanted to become a board-certified surgical specialist, and that, that's where I was sort of gearing that preceptorship towards. But then you decided not to do that. Yes. Why did you make that decision? Because, again, let's look at it from the perspective of the blueprint of the right fit. Absolutely, and, and really it, it comes down to that blueprint, essentially, what I found was that these surgeons, while I had the utmost respect for them and learned so much from them, they all they did was surgery. They didn't do, really engage in medicine. In fact, when their their cases would need medical intervention, they would bring in internal medicine consults. Uh, you know, for 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 certain things such as we have a secondary uh, you know uh, secondary DIC or the patient's gone into shock or something of that nature. Um, you know, these guys pretty much their their job is surgery, 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 and that's wonderful. And and my hat goes off to them. I didn't want to be tied to just one particular discipline, so I felt let me sponge as much as I can off of these guys. Let let my surgical skills become as good as they possibly can be, and let me take that with me into general practice where I can still perform some fairly highly technical surgeries, yet still engage in medicine and other aspects of veterinary medicine. After you completed your preceptorships, 
you joined a fast-paced, intensive, four-doctor veterinary hospital in the New York metropolitan area. Why did you join this group? Well, I chose this group, um, you know, uh, of course, the, 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 the starting pay was good. I have to admit that. <laughs> but um, the, what was attractive about this particular group is that they were very busy. They had a very high caseload. They had a very good reputation. Specifically, there was two doctors there. One is the owner, and one had been with the, this particular hospital for about a decade. And what I had was able to spun from these two is uh, an incredible amount of experience. Um, they were able to mentor me in a really huge way. So whereas you see some practices very quick to refer, very quick to refer cases, um, these guys had the confidence and the skill to not have the necessity to do that. And, you know, of course, where that really helps the client is that referral medicine is wonderful, and I'm glad we have it. I think we're a better profession for it. It can be very costly. Not everybody can afford that. And what we were able to do is offer, you know, some very advanced medical techniques, surgical techniques to, to clients to, or to our patients um, at, at, at less of a cost. And, of course, we were better veterinarians for it. So that was very attractive to me. Now, let's go a bit further. You were there for three years. Yes. Were you happy there during that three-year period? I was very happy, um, for the most part, yes. Yet, you then decided to leave. Yes, I did. I think it was interesting that... During our course of conversation, you shared with me that even though you were very young, the patients, I guess I should say the clients who brought the patients. Yes, that's true. Yeah, the (laughs) clients, because obviously the pets didn't bring themselves to the hospital. Of course. The... um, clients who brought the pets were very much taken with you and wanted you to be their vet. Tell us about that and how that affected you. Um, yes, it, when, I, when I first joined the practice, um, you know, of course, there, there are vets that have been there quite a long time. Um, there was pretty much the, the, the shortest tenure ahead of me was, you know, she had already been there two and a half to three years. And what, what you saw was that, you know, each one had their certain following, and people would call and say, I want Dr. So-and-so. Um, as a new vet, of course, you know, you, they just gave you people um, or gave you the clients that didn't have a doctor preference. Usually they were new clients. Uh, sometimes when one of the older doctors weren't available and they had no one else to see and it was either me or nobody, you know, they'd end up in my lap. Um, but what I found was, and, and what my boss found was, that he, that he was very tickled with was the fact that within a very short time, I started to gather my own following. And, and what he had, had uh, intimated to me, ha- something that it happened in a fairly short period of time compared to other vets that he has hired throughout the years, and he'd been doing it for 30, you know, 27, 30 years. So um, what what he found was that, you know, here you are, only six, you know, six months with the practice. You're 27 years old, yet people feel very, very confident uh, with you and your abilities, and that's a wonderful thing. And um, I, I, as part of, uh, and I, I think we're going to just we'll discuss this a little further, um, a little further along in the interview. But that's was my initial impetus to have the courage to branch out on my own was that I, I knew I can do that. Okay, so you decided to leave to branch out on your own, and you picked entrepreneurship. Yes. You moved to Florida. Why did you move to Florida, and how did you go about finding a hospital to purchase and purchase it? You were how old then? I was only 30 years old at the time. You were 30 years old, and that was your next blueprint. I think that you really I think you must thank your parents, Dr. Welton, for teaching you 
at an early age how to think through things and figure them out rather than making a mistake over and over again and then figuring it out subsequently. I mean, they really helped you do that. I'm very grateful to my parents, in fact, to the point that if you look at my book, on the inside cover of the dedication, uh, well, of course, there's one dedication to my wife, but one dedication to my parents. And basically, uh, the statement, and of course, I remember it by memory, uh, to my parents, whose unwavering, whose unwavering faith in me laid the basis for my, or laid the foundation for my success, and that just sums it up in a nutshell. Uh, the parents, with the utmost confidence that I can do anything, um, and and that's something that you know still to this day I take with me. Um, and thankfully, I'm I'm very lucky that you know they're still very healthy and very alive and very much with me. But back to your original question. Um, the reason I, you know, I was very happy at the animal hospital I was at. However, I found myself increasingly wanting to evolve with the profession, wanting to evolve with the latest stuff, with the latest equipment, with the latest techniques. And I found that at this point the practice had be- begun to stagnate a little bit, at least from my view. Now, is, is, that, is that really fair to assess them that way? I don't know. But from my own view, they weren't evolving quickly enough. And I found myself increasingly frustrated with having discussions with the boss basically trying to get my input and, and, and my ideas integrated into the practice, and, and I was getting increasing resistance. Of course, I still love the man. I think he's a wonderful veterinarian. I think he's a, a wonderful guy, but we were just kind of had this impasse. So I felt that in order to implement my vision, that which is, it was which, is, pre- which is comprised of very high standards. We, we, must, we must emphasize that. Yes, absolutely. High standards, but with the ability to change, always changing. We practice medicine for a reason. We call it practice medicine because we have to constantly learn and change and evolve. And, um, and you also can't shut your mind out um, to, to things like alternative medicine. You have to look at the, the uh, industry as a whole. Um, so I moved on, and, uh, of course, I, I did end up in Florida, and my idea for coming to Florida really wasn't necessarily my own. My brother, an entrepreneur in his own right, and you know, pretty much when it comes to the entrepreneurial thing, was my first role model, just seeing that he just refused to work for anybody his entire life. He was always starting businesses and, and, and branching out on his own and, and eventually became very successful. Uh, the uh, firm that he was with had offered him a great opportunity here on the space coast of Florida, Space Coast of Florida is in the Cape Canaveral area, and hence gets its name. And I had come down to uh, visit him just on vacation. It was the middle of February, and I flew out of JFK Airport in uh, Long Island, New York, uh, in the middle of a blizzard. And I get down here, and it's 83 degrees. Uh, you know, by day two, we were out on his boat, and uh, life was wonderful. And I just thought to myself, okay, well, I'm looking to branch out start my own practice, I, I have to figure out exactly you know, where it is I want to live and spend my life, and I thought, what a better place than the space coast of Florida, uh, because I, I, just, I just love the weather and love the atmosphere here. Uh, so then I set to just looking for a practice, and uh, lucky for me, the perfect fit came along, which was Maybach Animal Hospital. Explain how you went about getting a loan. Because obviously it was expensive to buy a hospital from a long-established vet. I think you told me she had been in practice with her hospital, which included also a clinic, Mm -hmm. for more than, I think, 25 years. That's correct. Okay. So she had a very well-established practice. Yes. How did you go about arranging for the loan? And what did they think when they realized uh, that you were 30 years old? How did they interact with you? Uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's very interesting you brought that up because, yes, I was quite young, uh, much younger than most, uh, going out to branch out and purchase their own practice. What I had on my side was good credit, of course. Um, my degree, you know, three years' experience, that's not a ton of experience in the eyes of a lender, but, you know, it, it's something. Um, but the, what it came down to is I, I got in contact with a wonderful uh, lending broker, and he basically had told me that, look, if the numbers work, um, you know, as per the price of the practice, if the cash flows there, they will lend you the money. Um, 
it's just a matter of the numbers crunching and, and us working this out and hashing out the right price for uh, the bank to find it acceptable. Um, and, and to my wonderful surprise, uh, they took little issue with my age. Um, they took e- even less issue with the fact that I was only uh, in practice for three years. Um, their biggest issue was that I was relocating st- you know, from one state to another. But as soon as I sold my house in New York, they got over that pretty quickly as well. So now, you much, did have to get licensure in um, Florida, right? That's correct. I had to take a state test. All right. So they did they hold off on finalizing the loan until you were licensed in Florida? Um, by the time I had applied for the loan, I was already licensed. I set that up months before. Um, you know, I had this thing rolling. I dotted my I's and crossed all my T's before I even moved on it. Um, so the license was in place. I was already established as a um, as a Florida licensed veterinarian, so that wasn't an issue at all to the lender. So you planned ahead, anticipating what roadblocks could could arise yes. and eliminate them. Is that correct? Absolutely. Terrific. Absolutely. Yes. You're always learning and exploring new and advanced areas of animal wellness. Tell us about the role nutrition plays in keeping our pets healthy. Well, nutrition is really, just like in the human side of things, it's where it starts. It's what powers our bodies. It's what nourishes our bodies. What you put in is what you get out, and it is no, no different from dogs and cats. Um, what I found was, and this is, this is an evolving process, and it's getting better, but there is so much just poor quality food out there, and... Um, the consumer that's purchasing it for their pet really um, purchases it unbeknownst to themselves that they're not getting good quality food because what they look at are the food labels, the crude protein, the crude fat, the crude fiber, and it all compares, you know, pretty much the, 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 the poor products very compare very well with the very higher quality products when you just break down the percent nutrients, but it's quality of ingredients that gets us to these nutrients that really matters. So, um, when you look at a protein source, for example, such as muscle, you know that's a good protein source um, of, of higher biological value, meaning that the body's going to utilize most of that and you know get rid of uh, less of it as waste. And you compare it to hoof, hair, and skin as a protein source, there's going to be a big difference in what you're going to get from either one of those protein sources, yet crude protein is going to be the same for the food that provides real lean muscle as protein versus the one that's, you know, using hoof or uh, hair or skin. And that's where the duping process comes in. So my my best advice to uh, any pet owner is talk to your veterinarian about diet. Uh, he can steer you, he, she can steer you in the right direction. We've kind of been to the puppet show and seen all the strings. We know it doesn't work. Uh, we know it's poor quality. We know what the good ones are, um, and we're happy to tell you about it. Well, do you have to buy... Uh, pre-prepared pet food? What about preparing something yourself? You can prepare food yourself, and that's fine. Um, but what we find, what, what my, my, my limitation or, or the limitation that I find with that approach is that, say, down the road, your dog needs a prescription diet because he has um, a disease that needs a prescription diet, such as kidney failure, perfect example. There are prescription engineered diets that are restricted in protein, phosphorus, and uh, sodium, um, and also have you know other various nutritional elements to them that help support that disease. That you know what the best thing to do is put your dog on this food. However, we've had a lifetime of this dog being spoiled on a, a home cooked diet. Good luck getting him now sick on a on a dog food. And and. That, to me, is, is, is one problem. Another issue is dental health. I'm a big fan of dried, crunchy dog food. Or, um, and it's not just dogs. It's cats as well. Um, I, I'm a, I'm usually, I usually steer my, parent, my, my uh, clients uh, into the direction of feeding my patients uh, dry food because of the teeth cleaning aspect of it. So my preference is a good quality, uh, dry-formulated uh, diet. And, again, your veterinarian is in the best position to tell you, you know, the, the better ones out there. Tell us about Bernie, the famous Bernie. <laughs> uh, Bernie is um, uh, a lovable big goofball. He's 86 pounds of love. He is my yellow Labrador. 
who came into my life under amazing circumstances. Um, my uh, previous beloved Labrador Retriever, it's one of my favorite breeds, I think I'll always have one, um, Tiffany, had been you know, pretty much my life companion as my education took me all over the place. She uh, spent my last two years of college with me. She went to vet school with me, even to the island. She went to Illinois with me, and ultimately with my wife and I back to New York and then back down here to Florida. Tiffany went everywhere with me. And she had been diagnosed with lymphoma, and I knew my my days w- with her were were numbered, and it was very, very difficult for me. Um, interestingly enough, one day at work, and this is now at Maybach Animal Hospital, uh, these nice people, um, you know, nice but very simple people came in with this five-month-old darling little puppy. His name was not Bernie at the time, by the way. His name was Duke. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, you renamed him Bernie. I renamed him, yes. And Bernie had um, a really nasty fracture, and he came in screaming. As it turned out, one of the other dogs in their home, a big dog, had fallen on the five-month-old puppy's leg and pretty much crushed it. Um, the fracture was across the growth plate. It was a devastating fracture uh, beyond my expertise to fix. This was in the realm of a board-certified surgeon. We had discussed that earlier, the specialist. Right. And, you know, these people, unfortunately, barely had the money to even pay for the visit just for me to examine their puppy. They certainly could not afford uh, to go to the specialist, nor did they have the credit to finance the operation. And looking at this beautiful puppy suffering the way he was, I had I'd pretty much convinced them to sign over Bernie's care to me, and then I would be financially responsible uh, for getting, you know, uh, getting this, procuring the specialist and having him do the surgery. I called the local referral center, which is the Animal Emergency and Critical Care Center of Brevard County, and spoke to their board-certified surgeon, Jeff Christensen, and uh, he basically said, "Yeah, we can do a little physician's discount for you, but you know, it's going to cost you know this this amount of money." I said, well, it's got to be done. This puppy cannot live like this. And, and he told me, well, this is a pretty guarded prognosis. This is one of the nastier fractures you'll see in veterinary medicine. Long story short, or short story long, I should say, um, the surgery went wonderful. Jeff did a fantastic job. Um, Bernie uh, was in our care, and because my dog was sick, uh, she uh, he pretty much uh, you know, helped me through the eventual loss of Tiffany, and, uh, you know, without Bernie, I think uh, the loss of Tiffany was hard enough. With him there, without him there, I think I would have suffered a great deal more. Uh, but he was he was sort of a little crutch to me and has grown up to be 86 pounds of pure love, like I said. You can barely tell that he had ever hurt his leg. He, he, he has this kind of goofy little stance where his paw turns out a little bit sideways as compared to the other front paw. And it's, it's kind of endearing, actually. But he, he swims, he runs, he plays. And through the course of uh, the whole Bernie uh, saga, I actually became very, very good friends with board-certified surgeon Dr. Christensen, and he and I to this day uh, remain actually very close friends, so I got a new, a new really good buddy out of it. Terrific. It's mm-hmm. interesting how you managed to pair the pets with the people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my wife even thinks Bernie and I kind of look alike. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Describe... The Roger Welton brand of veterinary medicine. Um, the, the the brand of medicine that 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 my that I approach is pretty much don't become focused on just clinical science. Look at the patient as a whole. Also, have an open mind to alternative techniques. Um, a perfect example is a patient that comes in and has uh, trouble with the rear rear legs. I mean, that's you, you see at least one or two of those a day. Middle-aged, older patient, canine patient comes in and is stiff in the rear leg, slow to rise and, and whatnot. Um, automatically, a lot of practitioners will become solely focused on the hips, the, the musculoskeletal aspect of what's going on. Of course, rule out any neurological things by doing some neurological tests. Ultimately, discover that, yes, there is indeed some osteoarthritis in the hips, probably the most common place we see arthritis in dogs, and, you know, send them off on a... Um, anti-inflammatory and a good joint health supplement. Bad medicine? No. It's it's good medicine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I take it a step further because I say, okay, well, we do have arthritis in this case, but from experience, I know that sometimes the degree of arthritis you see on x-rays doesn't necessarily correlate 
with the clinical picture. I've seen really horrible-looking hips, yet the dog's walking just fine. Um, so what I always want to do is let me rule out any metabolic weaknesses that could be exacerbating this arthritis, and perhaps maybe the arthritis isn't the primary issue here. Maybe the primary issue is a metabolic weakness. And case in point, one of the most common metabolic diseases we see in middle-aged older dogs is hypothyroidism, uh, which is basically underactive or uh, underactive thyroid or thyroid hormone deficiency, however you want to look at it. A big common cause for weakness, and I've seen some dogs where, you know, we pick up that thyroid that's easily done with a thyroid hormone supplement, and suddenly their arthritis isn't an issue anymore. They're fine. It was the weak, the metabolic weakness that made that arthritis an issue. So that you focus on the underlying cause. You don't stop at the symptoms and right. assume that that's it. And, Absolutely. And by focusing on the underlying cause, you may not need to then focus on the symptoms. That's, that's a very good way to put it. That's a very, very good way to put it. We have patients that can't talk to us, so we have to look at the patient as a whole. Don't just stop your examination at the hips. Listen to the heart. Um, palpate the abdomen. Look for anything else that could be wrong with this dog because, you know what, this dog or cat cannot articulate it to you. They can't say, you know, I've been really tired and lethargic these days. My appetite hasn't been so great. They can't say that. We have to interpret that. Um, so I, I leave no stone unturned, and that, that's that's a, probably one of the most prevalent aspects of the way I practice. In 2007, you launched the mega portal webdvm.net. Describe the site and tell us about two unique features, the free symptom checker and ask the vet service. You um, you actually did a very good job of explaining the site in your intro, um, but uh, very quickly I just explain it's it's created along the lines of a WebMD where you have you know, the vast majority of what you have available to you is free. So there is uh, disease article pages, there's pet insurance information, there is training techniques, there is behavioral techniques, there is, uh, you know, you name it, whatever you need to find out about your dog, you know, it's, it, it's in there. And a lot, of the, a lot of the articles I wrote personally, so it was quite t- time-consuming to set it up. The symptom checker is a virtual, um, basically, it kind of just self-describes itself. It's a, it's a symptom checker where you have a just a, a big list of, of symptoms and you click on the symptom and all of a sudden pop up um, a number of different possible diseases that you could be dealing with. And each disease link, of course, comes with an article that either I or another veterinarian wrote. So you can, it, basically the point of it is to, for the user to identify disease and know whether or not, hey, it may be a good idea to take my dog to the veterinarian or take my cat to the veterinarian. Um, and, of course, that's free as well. The only pay service on the site is the Ask the Vet service where you actually log in and for a fee can ask a direct question to an online veterinarian 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have a regular Internet radio broadcast, Pet Chat Radio. What is the format of that show, and can we listen to it? And how can we listen to it? Um, it's um, it, it's uh, the, it's an audio broadcast that I do either biweekly or weekly, depending on how much action there is going on in the animal news world. But uh, that's one of the primary uh, that's one of the primary uses of the audio broadcast. Is I get on there and and I talk about the top animal news stories, and some of them are really neat. Um, you know, you're not going to hear about a lot of this stuff on the mainstream news, and it's kind of cool, uh, all the various things that happen in the animal world every day. Um, so I usually highlight about three to five top stories. Um, sometimes I have a guest on. Uh, my most recent guest was a veterinary pharmaceutical representative for a big veterinary pharmaceutical company. guest before that was a, uh, a master groomer. So I have guests like that that can, you know, just uh, talk about various aspects of the animal care industry as a whole. Um, and at the end, I always finish with a personal comment. I call it the personal comment, which is you know, either a comment on perhaps one of the news stories or perhaps something that, one of, that my, my uh, guest had touched on, or if it was an experience that I had during the week that I wanted to expand on and, and maybe have my listeners take some lessons from. You love to create. What are you going to create next? 
with your hospital? Because I know we talked about it, and you have big plans. Take us into your confidence and tell us about your big plans. I most certainly will, because I'd be happy to. Um, I want to create basically something that's never been done in veterinary medicine, or not, not done to my knowledge anyway. We exist right now as general practitioner and referral practice, where you have the general practitioner, which is the veterinarian like me, and you have a referral practice that's going to have your neurologist, your board-certified surgeon, your board-certified cardiologist, you have it. Um, you know, you name the specialty, you know, that hospital exists for that purpose, and you can't get into that hospital without a referral from a general veterinarian. What I want to create is a hybrid of the two. I want to have the first general practice slash referral practice where your first line is going to be the general practitioners. We're going to work up your cases. We will take it to the extent that we can with our capabilities and, and skill, and then if the necessity has it, send it on to a specialist who will be in my employ, such as a neurologist or a surgeon or whomever. I want to be a full service hospital, not not this breakdown of general practice versus referral practice. I want to be a total full functioning hospital. Um, it, it's sort, sort of like the human model, if you really think about it. It sounds as if it could become a Mayo Clinic. Yeah, that's what I envision, actually. That's what I Yeah, think that's what I had a feeling, because you have very high standards. So I envision people flying into Florida, bringing their pets just to your particular facility, just like they come from all over the world to go to the Mayo Clinic. Uh, that, that, sounds, that just sounds just wonderful to me. In fact, even with my hospital as it is, I have people that drive all the way from Kissimmee, uh, which is out by Disney, you know, it's New Orlando, 45-minute drive because they're happy with our service. Had a couple today, actually, that drove up all the way from West Palm Beach, an hour and 45 minutes to two hours away, because they want to see, you know, my hospital, be seen, at, have their pet seen at my hospital and only my hospital. So if if Maybeck Animal Hospital can accomplish that, yes, what I envision could very well be something along the lines of what you're talking about. Well, again, I think it reinforces your brand, which you talked about earlier. Yeah. Now, let's get into your personal life. <laughs> you are married to Melissa and have an infant son, Austin, three dogs, and two cats. That's correct. Earlier, you talked about your beloved Tiffany. Yes. Tell us how she select, helped you select your wife. Okay, well, I'm glad you brought up Tiffany because Tiffany has something to do with this. As I said, Tiffany was pretty much my other half. Uh, she went everywhere with me, and um, pretty much she was a, a buddy of mine, just like Waldo was at, at, five, at five years old. Uh, during those years, I was in my 20s, you know, early to mid-20s, and, of course, I was dating. And one big criteria for anybody that I dated was, my dog had to like her, or she, and or she had to like my dog. If either of those two things didn't happen, the girl didn't really stand a chance. Um, and you know what? Sometimes the, a girl came along that you know just didn't really rub Tiffany the right way. She wasn't mean to her, but just didn't especially have an interest in her. And I always thought Tiffany knows something. She absolutely knows something, and she's looking out for me. That's you know, and, and automatically I would have that in the back of my mind moving forward. Now, of course, if they came in and blatantly said, I don't like dogs, and, you know, all bets are off, that, that's the last date right there. In the case of my wife, I met her at the University of Illinois. She was one of the radiology technicians there, and I was rotating through the radiology department. Um, her job was to mentor the students in uh, radiographic positioning and technique, so she taught us to take the x-rays. Um, the radiologists, the doctors taught us how to interpret them, so she was my instructor in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, of course, I, I, I sort of developed a crush on, on my instructor. And the first time that Tiffany met her, or she met Tiffany, there was a very nice camaraderie right there, right off the bat. Tiffany loved her. She loved Tiffany. They were rolling on the ground playing together. And I thought, this is a wonderful start. And, in fact, of all the women I've met in my life, you know, through those Tiffany years, she took to my wife better than anybody. <laughs> and, of course, I married her. Of course. 
For other reasons, of course, not just Tiffany. But of it's course. Hurt. <laughs> How do you balance your professional and personal life? Well, that that there's there's a gray gray area there. I think the most important thing is is I have to learn to shut it off. I have to learn to when I come home, I'm home. Um, it's time to spend time with my son, be with my wife, take a dip in the pool, walk around the neighborhood, perhaps go down to the park, make dinner for the family. I love to cook. My wife, you know, enjoys when I cook. So um, have my family time because lots of times I will be you know plucking through the day. Uh, completely boggled down in cases, yet I have an idea, but I can't implement that idea or explore it because, hey, I have cases to work through here. And today was one of those days. I was absolutely flabbergasted at work today. I didn't even get to sit down and have a lunch. I was so busy. And you have these ideas, and and all I want to do is come home and explore it or implement it or do something, you know, and usually it's about my website. But I have to just shut it off and at least have that family time until my little boy goes to bed at about 8.30. And then, you know, then I can explore it or, or, or perhaps, you know, wait for a maybe a lunch hour at work or something like that. But that's the most important thing. I need to learn to shut it off. <laughs> but I think you do an outstanding job of taking charge and doing what I call managing the process. You recognize that you have um, family responsibilities and interests and you manage to do it all. Absolutely. I, I love the quote from the great movie, Jerry Maguire, his, great men, his late great mentor uh, from the movie. He said, love your life, love your wife. Um, and that's, that's so emphatically true because without, without the family life, um, all the success in the world just isn't worth it. And I know that when we talked prior to the show, you mentioned that Melissa is um, – not exactly a dreamer as you are, and she helps to keep you grounded. So I think it's a fascinating balance that you both have. And a necessary one. Not just fascinating, but necessary. Um, I am the dreamer. I'm the driven. I'm the ambitious. I'm constantly uh, seeking new and better ways. She's the practical one, so she always keeps me with one foot in reality. So maybe now's not the right time to take the risk that I want to take. Maybe now's not the right time. Maybe the economy's not ready for it. Maybe the town's not ready for it. Um, she she provides that practical information or, or practical, not information, but practical perspective. And I think together we're a very good team. I give her the dreaming. She gives me the practicality. <laughs> Dr. Welton, you are a win-without-competing man. You know your core identity. You are soaked in passion. You understand right fits. You compete with yourself and raise the standards against which you measure yourself higher and higher. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. Come back soon, especially when you build your Mayo in Florida. I most certainly will, and and may I please say I'm absolutely flattered uh, that you selected me to be on your show. Um, I'm just uh, very grateful, and uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. My pleasure. Upcoming shows. Please join me again on Wednesday, September 2nd at 5 p.m., Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview gynecologist Dr. Judith Reichman, author of four bestsellers on women's health issues, who appeared on the Today Show for more than a decade. To listen to archive shows, visit my website, drbarro.com, That's drbarrow.com, and click on the date of the show description that interests you. Here are a few suggestions. For fitness guru Steve Jordan, who is Dr. Welton's childhood friend, click on July 29th. For celebrity hairstylist Billy Lowe, click 
on August 5th for Queen of the Vampire novelist Sherilyn Kenyon. Click on July 8th. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. Please remember that we're based in Los Angeles. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. That's B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Remember this trigger tip, walk down the right fit road, and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.